to Luke chapter 4. This is where we began last week. And we'll once again... Uh, We'll once again start from there, and we'll see where we end up. In Luke chapter 4, <clears throat> look if you would at verse number 1. Luke chapter 4, verse number 1, and we're talking to you tonight, preaching from God's Word about the issue of pride and where it leads us. Verse number 1, be Jesus being full of the Holy Ghost returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And verse 2, being forty days tempted of the devil... And in those days he did eat nothing, and when they were ended, he afterward hungered. The devil said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, command this stone that be made bread. Jesus answered him, saying, It is written that the man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And the devil, taking him into a high mountain, showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee, and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will, I give it. If thou therefore <clears throat> wilt worship me, all shall be thine. We'll stop there, <clears throat> though that doesn't stop all the temptations. The fact is that this is one of those that, that uh, really sets up the basis of what we've uh, been preaching on. And uh, I've been preaching about humility and so forth using the springboard text from uh, Luke chapter 19 where uh, Nicodemus was up in a tree and he was looking to see the Lord Jesus Christ. And the fact is that uh, as it is in the Christian life, as it is in salvation, before you go up, you have to come down. And that's to say before he could be raised up spiritually, he had to come down spiritually. He had to... Uh, sort of hit bottom. He had to come down. Well, we use as an illustration that he came out of the tree, and the Bible says he came down. I said it then, and I'd say it again, that a key word for every Christian is the word down. Down. Get used to it. Because if you go to the book of Revelation, you'll find out that there are a lot of bowing down that takes place when we get to heaven. There's a lot of things about heaven I don't understand. Not at all. I, I don't understand a thing about some things. Uh, I've always wondered if our relationships on earth are going to be the same as they are in heaven. And the Lord said, I go to prepare a place for you. It's individual, very clearly individualized. Do I have a house all my own? I've even concerned myself and asked the Lord if he'd work there to make sure he takes care of it, that there would not be dormitories. I lived in one for several years in college, and I'm not interested in dormitories so I'm, ha I'm asking the Lord, you don't do that. Let's just don't do dormitories. Whatever else we do, don't do dormitories in heaven. But the thing is, I don't know how the arrangement's going to be. I don't know how we'll work that. I don't know how it'll be prescribed, how the Lord will say, here's how we're going to work the system, and here's how everybody will just be everybody happy and everything will be fine. I know there'll be no sin, and therefore we can get along with almost everything, if not everything. The point I make about all that, I don't know all the details about that, and it's strangely enough, I don't know all the details about salvation. But there is some things about salvation that are crystal clear. That before a person can come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, he has to bow down. You, uh, as Adrian Rogers used to say, you, can't, uh, you have to do more than tip your hat to the Lord Jesus. You have to bow your knee. And that's the absolute truth. And when you bow down and you accept the fact that uh, you humble yourself before the Lord, you put yourself in a position to be used. If you elevate yourself, you put yourself in a position of failure. Oh, it may not come immediately, but it's as sure to come 
as the sun is to shine. Because the Bible says, he that exalteth himself, in essence, he that lifts himself up, sets himself up for a big fall. And the fall will come, it just depends on exactly where. In this passage of Scripture, in this one point, we'll hit again and then we'll move from here, but listen carefully. Here you have uh, the devil coming to the Lord Jesus Christ, and remind yourself who the devil is. The devil is a created angel. Who did all the creating? The Bible says that Jesus Christ from John 1, 1 was the creator. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God in the beginning, and it talks about Jesus Christ. So the point is, Jesus Christ is your creator. So Jesus Christ created this person, this object of individual who is coming before him and saying to him, I'll, uh, look at all this mountainous range here, look out over the mountains and see all these kingdoms out here. I want you to know I'll give this to you, but you've got to bow down to me. Now here you have it. The Creator talking to the created, and the created is telling the Creator that if you'll bow down to me, I'll give you all this. Nobody fights the issue that in this very text that it does say that he had the power of it. We don't know how he got that power. The Bible is not uh, succinct. But it is clear that in this text, in the Bible, it says that he had it to give. He had some authority over it. But in this case, he says to the Lord Jesus, if you will bow down... I'll give all this to you. Now, can you imagine that? Can you imagine the created telling the creator that if you'll bow down before me, I'll give you certain privileges. I'll do certain good things for you. That's just, that's just almost uh, beyond conception to me. I can't hardly conceive of that. But what that really is is a, is a vocal illustration, a por portrait, as it were, of the truth of what the Bible says when somebody like you and I, who are a created being, and we take what God has given us, and we use it, as it were, for ourselves, or, or even try for His glory, but we glory in it. When we do that, it's saying the same thing. It's saying, hey, look, I know you created me, and I know you've given me, and Paul asked the question, what do you have that you did not receive? What do you have that you did not receive? Everything you've got, I gave you. Now, what are you bragging about? What are you boasting about? And the case is, we don't have anything to boast about. Whatever we can do, he gave us the ability to do it. And he gave us the power to do it. And he, he gave us the mind to do it and understanding to do it. We have nothing on our own. And so when you come to do that, if you ever come to a point where you're boastful or braggadocious or you stand out to a crowd and make people look at you like you're somebody, you're doing the exact same thing that the devil did when he stood before the Lord and said, If you'll bow down to me, I'll give you all this. It would be likened, as I said last week, it would be likened to you to go to the Grand Canyon on a day when the sun is setting and look over all the Grand Canyon and all the beauty and all the array of, of the color of rock and the clouds and all the stones and all the trees and all the stuff there, and you just look at that and then you, you reach around with your arm and pat yourself on the back and say, I did this. You say, that's stupidity. You didn't have anything to do with that. Neither did you with what you possess that you use. Not a lick of it. You have the same right to go to the Smoky Mountains and stand on the side of one of those hills and look out over all those beautiful blue mountains and, boy, say, look what I've created. 
than you do to brag about what you've been given to accomplish with the Lord. It simply says you have no right to. You have no right. And when you do, the Bible calls that pride. And the Bible has no use for pride anywhere, in anything, in any believer. None whatsoever. There are several things about it. One of them is, and it illustrates it, I think, well, in an Old Testament text. Look, if you would, from where you are in Luke. Look over to Exodus chapter number 10. In Exodus chapter number 10, look, if you would, at the first three verses. In chapter 10 of Exodus, you're you're into the context of, of the plagues coming upon Egypt because Pharaoh will not allow the children of Israel who are in bondage there to leave. And the Pharaoh full well knows what the order of the Lord is. Moses and Aaron have gone in before the Pharaoh and told him repeatedly, you know, won't you let my people go? And won't you let them go so they can worship me, they can sacrifice to me? So in chapter 10, verse 1, the Lord said unto Moses, Go in unto Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I might show these my signs or signs before him. Uh, The Lord seldom ever does anything for one reason. Don't ever forget that. He seldom ever does anything with one reason in mind. Remember, he works all things after the counsel of his own will. All things. Just to get this done, it could affect 15 things. Or to work it and to work it the way he wants there had a lot of things had to happen, and they had to happen in a, in a right sense of order. So the thing about this is, when it comes to this point, the Lord says that I might show these my signs before him. Now, the Lord's got a plan not only to get him to come around to let Israel go, but also the Lord wants to illustrate who he is through the signs and the plagues that he's brought upon Egypt. Verse 2, that thou mayest tell in the ears of thy son and of thy son's son, what things I have wrought in Egypt, and my signs which I have done among them, that you or ye may know how that I am the Lord. Then notice verse 3, And Moses and Aaron came in unto Pharaoh and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord God of the Hebrews, How long wilt thou refuse to humble yourself before me? Here's the circumstance of a a lost man, and uh, Pharaoh is lost. He does not know the Lord. He's an idol worshiper in Egypt, and uh, it's an interesting thing. The Lord is looking for this man to be humbled before him. And the one thing about that is, is the first thing could be, is that um, Pharaoh could have come to faith in the Lord. He could have bowed and, and called upon the Lord to have mercy on him and change his life, and he had every opportunity to do that. And the fact is, the Lord didn't harden his heart and make him to do something he didn't want to do. The Lord often uses what we are, have proclivity toward and just feeds it and lets you make the decision from there what you're going to do about it. So the fact that the Lord nudges him toward this direction is only to say this is where he was headed. And the Lord allowed him to carry it out. But in this case, the Lord is still looking for him to be humble about it. It's a shame that the Pharaoh could not have humbled himself and said, Hey, I see now the Lord, he is God. And bowed down, but he didn't do that. 
And the fact is, there are other passages of Scripture we could read and we could consider, but the issue is the same in all of them, that the Lord has a plan, and he works two or three things at the same time to accomplish what he's doing, not only show the people of Israel that he is God, but also show the Egyptians that he is God, and also to humble the Pharaoh, all of it in one package, doing it at the same time. And this is all in the issue, in what we call the issue of salvation, in uh, That's to bring people to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me take you to a few passages. We won't spend a long time in it, but let me show you a few of these. Look at it from Exodus back to the book of Acts. And look down early to the book of Acts in like chapter number 2. This is set forth in several ways. But it's an interesting thing that in the Old Testament especially... We had cases where that uh, the prophets and, and uh, in the early days of the early church, they did this, that is, uh, they would come about and uh, they pretty much had a one-word sermon. You know, somebody was uh, sort of making light of the fact that they, they wrote it like this. It says, I would have loved it if I could have preached a one-word message uh, as they did in some places the Old Testament prophets and some in the New And he said, uh, you'd go to a church and you'd walk in and you'd say, good morning, repent, and let us pray, and you'd leave. He was making the point that the thrust of the message was just simple, and it was one word. You need to repent. And then uh, they'd have prayer. He said, how fantastic would it be? And they all preached the same thing, every guy, every one of them. It was plagiarism to the ultimate and they'd say, good morning to a congregation, and say one word, repent. And he says, as if they went out. And he said, then they'd get in their chariot, and they'd ride away, and they'd go to the next church. And they'd walk in and say, hello, repent. And then they'd leave for the next service. Now, he's exaggerating. Uh, we Baptists have a way of doing that. But the fact of the matter is, it makes the point. The point was, the big issue was, not get lost in the stories they told about the history of Israel from the past, because it almost always ended up with the word, repent. Let me show you. Look, if you would, in chapter number 2, and look down to verse number 38. In chapter 2, in the first goings of that passage, you have the coming of the Holy Spirit. And then when you get toward the end of the chapter, in fact, you're just a few verses away from the end, verse 38, then Peter said unto them, this is after the whole of the story, the address starting in verse 14, the part that he deals with here, and from this point, Peter said unto him, Repent, and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. But it wasn't just this time. Look over to chapter 3 of the book of Acts. Look in chapter 3 and look down, if you would do, oh, look down to verse number 19. And verse 19, after the lame man's been healed, Peter appeals to the Jews to repent. And verse 19, he hammers it. He says, Repent ye, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. The fact of the matter is, everything he was talking about in that word repent, we know it means a change of mind. That's pretty basic. But it also means, in essence, to bow down. It's saying that you need to look at who you are, and you need to look at the standard of who he is, and recognize that you don't match up. And because you don't match up, you need to change your mind, which is also a changing of the heart. And the Holy Spirit, of course, I have to bring that to fruition. It can't be just doing, you say, well, I'll change my mind about that. Uh, It has to be more than that. It has to be a change of heart. And what happens in that process is it's a putting down. 
people who do who who, who feel like they don't need to repent, uh, they stand up straight. You can have illustrations all through the Bible of, of people who face this. Let me show you one of them that always has impressed me. Look over to Genesis chapter number 18. Genesis 18, look at verse number 27. Genesis 18. Genesis 18, and look down to verse number 27. 1827, Abraham answered and said, Behold, now I have taken upon me to speak unto the Lord, which am but dust and ashes. That's an interesting thing because this is where Abraham intercedes for Sodom. And the fact is that um, he uh, is dealing with the fact if the Lord would, you know, spare it for 50. He starts that in verse, oh, verse 24. He talks about 50. And then he gets down to, <clears throat> if he gets down to about 45, and then uh, he gets down to lacking uh, down to 40, and then down to 30, and down to 20. And the fact is, along the way, he says and speaks very openly in verse number 27. He acknowledges he is down. He's low down. He uh, He's not even worthy to stand up. He's down, and he calls himself, uh, am but dust and ashes. It's not that he's in dust and ashes. He concedes that's all he is. And the fact of the matter is, that's an attitude uh, of uh, of putting yourself down when you talk to the Lord. Somebody said it well. Abraham had said to God, Who am I but dust and ashes? And that's what a person who really meets God feels like. Is when he really meets the Lord, he finds himself getting down and getting down farther and farther. And I said it last week or so. It, it uh, amazes me that the Muslims and the Jews have a tendency to bow down. Baptists have a tendency to stand straight up. Does that tell us something about who we are? Why isn't that we Baptists are the ones who get the lowest? Why isn't that we're not the ones who who cry out to God and say, but I'm just dust and ashes, have mercy upon me? We've almost been coached into the idea that we are really somebody. And because we're really somebody, uh, we have this right to stand up straight and to talk to God as it were face to face. I remind you that uh, there was only one who did that, who spoke to God as it were face to face, and he's the one who asked God to show him his glory. And the Lord said, well, uh, I'll tell you what I'll do. You stand over there in the cleft of the rock. I'll put my hand out and hide you as I walk by, and you can see my hinder parts, but you can't see my face. That's all he got to see. But he was humbled about that. And here in this case, that's in Moses. In this case, it's Abraham who's showing the same kind of attitude. And the, the fact of the matter is that there's this side of uh, uh, a repentance on the part of a believer. You know, uh, Abraham was concerned here because uh, you, get, you begin to negotiate with God and you begin to say to him, Look, I've asked you for 50 and I know you, 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 you've listened, but I was wondering if we could get in 45 or I wonder if we could get down to 40 or if we could get down to 30. Uh, Abraham understands you're in, no, you're in no bargaining position, and no, no believer is. You're, you have no bargaining chips. You have nothing to put on the table to, to coach God to do something. It's by his pure mercy and his own will. 
So we have to humble ourselves before him, and then we just fall upon his mercy and, and plead the mercy that he shows. That's especially true in salvation. And the fact is, that's why we have so much of the emphasis on repentance and humility, even before people come to faith in Christ. Now look, if we have to get down to get saved in dust and ashes and repentance and so forth, doesn't that tell you that we need to stay there? Let me show you a couple other passages. Look, if you would, in the New Testament. Again, look at Colossians chapter number 2. Colossians chapter 2 refers uh, to a, a setting and circumstance where people evidently had caught on to the idea that um, you might try to fake this thing. Fake it, you know, and uh, fake it. I was listening to a commercial the other day of one of the steakhouses, and they said you can't fake steak. Uh, that's good. I'm glad you can't fake steak. When I buy steak, I want a steak. I don't want, I don't want, a, I want something else. I want a steak if that's what I'm buying. So you can't fake steak. Well, let me tell you something. You can't fake, you can't fake humility. This is what this passage is really going to lay out before us. Look at Colossians chapter 2 and look down to verse 18. It says in chapter 2 of Colossians, verse 18, Let no man beguile you. And uh, to beguile has a lot of uh, words. that One of them to us would be something, don't let a guy trick you or deceive you. Beguile you of your reward and, and, and a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. Vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. Now listen carefully. Every person you find, every individual you know, who has a tendency to puff themselves up, is in qualification of this phrase, vainly puffed up by a fleshly mind. When people puff themselves up, they, uh, they're taking credit for something like the Grand Canyon, but they didn't do it. They're taking credit for something they've been given and they can use and have access to, but they did not create it. And what the Lord looks at and says, that's just fleshly mind being puffed up. That's, that's as bad as it gets. It's the same old stuff the devil did when he bowed, uh, or the Lord wanted the Lord to bow down to him. And if he would bow down and worship him, he would give him all the kingdoms of the world. It's the same old sinful, wicked kind of thing. So in this particular case, interestingly enough, verse 19, and not holding the head from which all the body you know, by, by joints, joints and, ban and bands having nourishment ministered and knit together increaseth with the increase of God. Verse 20, Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are you subject to ordinances? Touch not, taste not, handle not. Verse 22, Which all are to perish with the using after the commandments and doctrines of men. Verse 23 closes the chapter. Which things have indeed, watch carefully, a show of wisdom in will worship and humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. The bottom line of the point is there's a way people try to fake humility. And people, you, you've probably met them, uh, they, they try to fake it by saying, I'm humble. They, might, they say, uh, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm simply a nothing. I'm a nobody. And they say the words, and they sound pretty good. But then their actions speak so much louder than the words they've just spoken. So what happens is you just now see through the, the smoke and the, 
the deceptive cloud of it, as it were. And what you see is those are words that are self-abasing. Self-abasing won't get it done. That's the kind of thing that says you paint yourself a picture and want people to see you for what you say you are, but that's not what you really are. So this passage of Scripture is really built on people who should have known better. They should have been further down the road spiritually, but they weren't. And what they were doing, they were, they were allowing themselves to be beguiled, to be tricked. They were self-deceived. And uh, who was it? Spurgeon said, There is no man more blind than he who cannot see and believes himself to see. Nobody is worse than that guy. He's nobody more blind than the guy who is blind but refuses to admit that he's blind. And nobody worse than that guy. And that's a, that's a deception of which this passage of Scripture speaks about. It is faking humility. And some people just can't fake it. It's just right there, and it's right there all the time. And the consequence of that is it just oozes a personal pride. The Bible then puts that in a category of its own and uh, deals with it in a way to tell us so, you know, succinctly that that's not the person the Lord will use. What you come to the Lord with is the way you came to the Lord in the first place in salvation. You come repenting. You come humbly. You come bowing. And you acknowledge that you are what you are at whatever point you are by the grace of God and nothing else. And when people don't talk a lot about what the Lord is doing in their life, that becomes the indicator and the red flag that says the Lord's not doing anything. Because they won't let him. It's an interesting thing to me. He's the creator of the universe. He created everything that is. Everywhere that is. And all the angels. And evidence is that uh, there are no other angels created. So he created all the angel band. All of them. And yet interestingly enough. The human heart can keep him from accomplishing his purposes with his creation. Because he yields to us in the sense that uh, he won't push you against, a, you know, if you, if you want to be self-centered and you want to be arrogant and you want to be proud and you want to fake humility, he'll let you do it. But you do so at your own demise. You literally spoil yourself in the word in the Greek language when you use spoil tells us of something that's missed its purpose. It's like milk in the refrigerator. You let it sit too long. You go to drink it. It doesn't smell good. It doesn't taste right. So you pour it out. What's the problem? It's missed its point. It's gone too far. It was intended to be used earlier. It wasn't, and so now it's ruined. It's spoiled. And in the Greek language, it carries with it that exact idea when we spoil ourselves by telling ourselves things that are not true about us. We we self-deceive ourselves. In the context of the passage here in Colossians, that's exactly what it sets up. It's also to be noted, turn back if you would from where you are in Colossians over to Second uh, Corinthians quickly, and we'll get you out here momentarily, so hang with me. Second Corinthians, look at Second Corinthians, and look down to chapter 7, chapter 7 of Second Corinthians. <clears throat> look, down to verse, look down to verse number 11. Second Corinthians 7 and verse number 11. 
This is an interesting thing about repentance and what it does and grieving over sin. It says in verse number 11, For behold, this selfsame thing that she sorrowed after a godly sort, what carefulness it wrought in you, yea, what clearing of yourselves, yea, what indignation, yea, what fear, yea, what vehement desire, yea, what zeal, yea, what revenge. In all things ye have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. And he said in verse number 10, For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. What he's talking about in verse number 11, and you can take the time to read read and meditate on it, but what it's setting before us is, for a person when they have sinned as a believer, and they have come to face their sin, and they're sort of overwhelmed with godly grief for what they did and if you're not careful as a christian if you don't deal with those little foxes that spoil the vine and the little sins that need to be addressed after a while you'll get to a point where uh, none of these things move you. you you just you sin and you don't think anything about it you may sit down and watch a television program and the television watching is is turned out to be rather filthy, and, and yet you don't have any compulsion to change the channel. You just sort of drink it in. They may be using all kind of foul language and maybe even using the Lord's name in vain, and there's something inside of you that because you've got the little foxes of sin that you never addressed, there's no godly grief about the bigger ones. And after a while, you just get to a point that in fairness, there is no spiritual spirit discernment, conviction to do anything to change your condition. If ever there was a frog in the kittle problem, that's where it is, and that's what this verse is about. Paul is saying that for the issue of godly sorrow, it worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but sorrow of the world, it worketh death. He's saying, in this case, there ought to be a grieving over the sin that you've committed and it ought not to be, you know, just a rare event. Anytime we sin, it ought to be a matter that we be overwhelmed with the conviction of it that how in the world did I allow myself to do that? And after a while, if you don't, you lose your sensitivity. You do something, and you sort of explain it away. Well, I've seen other people do this. I know some fine Christians who do this. That's not the point. The point is that if it's sin... If it's contrary to God's word and it's sin, he expects you to be sensitive enough to it to abstain from every appearance of evil, every bit of it. When you don't, the Holy Spirit then is somewhat grieved. He's set back. He's pushed back. And from here on in, you may do something even worse, but no sensitivity. It's a matter that you can... uh, Easily sit down and, you know, take your responsibilities during the day and you may, you may catch yourself wasting your time. You may catch yourself, uh, watching the slop opera, I mean the soap operas. And if you watch those and you see all these stories going on and you get lost in this world and you, you have this interest in these stories because they seem more exciting than what you're faced with, usually, uh, those stories are what we call sin-based. Watch carefully where it starts, and most often it starts with something that's illicit or wicked or wrong. And that's how they build their case. 
it's not only that, but it may be that you sit down and, and you got yourself into maybe the video game and you get excited about that. And next thing you know, you've used an hour or two hours of your time and you got lost in that thing. If not that, you may be a curious person and you may be, or you may be addicted. You may be addicted to uh, your computer and your iPhone and you, you just have to get on that thing. I don't care what the hour of the day, it doesn't matter. And how many times you've done it, you just have this internal addiction to this thing that you've got to check on what everybody in the world is doing. And the next thing you've done is you've wasted two, three hours of your time. And just as surely you'll come to something you should do, maybe talk to the neighbor across the street and share the gospel with him, or maybe to spend more time in prayer, which we often say we don't have time for. Isn't it interesting? The flesh makes time for what it treasures. It always will. And the Holy Spirit's out there and just saying, are you wasting your time? Are you wasting your time? Is this going to make you a better Christian? Is this going to help you grow in your faith? Is this going to move you toward that goal you have to walk with the Lord, live for the Lord, and die for the Lord if need be? Is this going to advance you toward that? Or is all this doing is just taking up your time? Or maybe even giving you more grief, more grief, things to, you know, people say things uh, on uh, Facebook and and, and um, whole process of conveying who they are and confessing their sins in some cases, and they tell you all kinds of stuff on there. They They quote statements and illustrate things that are absolutely unbiblical. And what that does to you, it introduces it to you. You have to think about it or you wouldn't know it's wrong. So when you do, now we've got a problem. It's up here now. And now you've got to guard it so it doesn't get down here. And just because somebody else does it doesn't necessarily say it's good and necessarily say it's bad. But it needs to be judged against everything the Bible says, and you need to hold ground on it. A member of our own fellowship a few days ago said to me, I have to watch myself more than I ever did because I catch myself using many of these tools that could be used for the Lord's glory. I use them to occupy my fleshly time, and I feel myself drifting and pulling further and further away from the private time with the Lord that's real and genuine and encouraging and uplifting and making me spiritually strong once I had. Not anymore. Beloved, it's important that we recognize that there is a need for us to be super sensitive for our sin in whatever packaging it comes in. No matter what it is, if it has anything in it that in comparison or are lying beside the Word of God and we see there is a difference between what we see and what the Bible says, we need to abstain from it and we need to pick ourselves up and say, hey, look, this isn't good for me. I'm not gaining ground spiritually, wasting a lot of time, but I need to do better. And we need to step back because obviously after a while the Holy Spirit's not going to say anything to you. If we just keep doing it, you keep running over Him. I reminded everybody in the Wednesday night services, uh, I shared that uh, the Holy Spirit is a person. He's a person. You can't see him, but he is a person. All the things that the Bible speaks about him in character, he is a person. It'd be just like this. If as, a, as your pastor, 
uh, and oh, by the way, it does happen, as a pastor, and I get up and I preach against something and try to give biblical basis for it and have a member of the church go right out and commit the very thing that I just talked about the week before. How do you think that makes me feel? Oh, not that my feelings are important. That's not the point. The point is, how would it make you feel if you were the Holy Spirit and you were doing your very best to help this Christian to move in a very progressive spiritual way and that person just keeps ignoring what you're telling them? And that's exactly what happens when the Holy Spirit isn't obeyed. When he speaks and we do not listen. And the fact is that uh, there's a song that uh, I was given uh, on a CD a long time ago. And in this song, it simply has the phrase in there, when he speaks, I know his voice. And that ought to be true with every believer in this room. When God, the Holy Spirit, speaks, you ought to know his voice. That doesn't mean he'll speak out loud. But it does mean that he'll use the language of the Scripture. So if you're familiar with the Scripture, when he speaks to you about something... You will know his voice. You will be sensitive to it, and you will understand it early on. But if you wait and you uh, run roughshod over it, you don't pay any attention to him, after a while, it will be a still, small voice. And you may not quite hear it. You may be so engaged in what it is that you're doing that you miss it. And in so doing, you'll be the loser. Because I remind you, He's there to be your helper. He's there to uh, convict the world of sin, of righteousness and judgment. For believer, he's there to keep us on track. Don't let us get out of bounds. And in the world you live in, there are all, all kinds of new trails. And the devil's made sure of that. And the Holy Spirit's there to keep you off the dead-end trails, to keep you back on the main thing and keep the main thing the main thing. The priority, the priority thing. But don't get off on dead-end trails, wasting your time, wasting your life, and using it for nothing that could be of any advantage to you spiritually. This passage of Scripture talks about in the issue of godly sorrow. It's translated in some places, spiritual grief. I don't know a lot of people who've gone through that, but the ones that I do know who've expressed themselves about it is really to say that it was something like they had never experienced before. Sometimes it takes a very big crisis for people to really come to a full grieving over their sin. But I say to you that the Bible indicates that's a good thing because when you do, you really get down. I mean, you get low. You know who you are when you get up. And boy, when you get up, it's like a load has been lifted Life has been changed. It's almost like a new birth conversion all over again. So this evening, whether you're here and you carry a load of sin or whether you're here this evening and you're up to date and current on the account with the Lord and there's nothing there to which you have to address or you know, carry yourself into a room of confession and deal with, whatever the case is, the point is the same. What the Lord wants for you is to keep you humble. Keeping you humble will keep you listening, keep you attentive. When you read your Bible, you'll be attentive to what it says and to his voice. And when he speaks and uses the scripture to bring conviction to you, you'll listen to that. And when you get to a point where you're not humble, you don't listen. Uh, He has and would not have any proud children. 
That's not the characteristic of a true born-again believer. The characteristic of a true believer is to be humble before the Lord. Just the way they came into the Christian faith, they live the Christian faith. And they die the Christian faith the same way. Someone said that's the reason the martyrs died so gracefully is because they left the way they came on their knees bowing before the Lord of glory. If we come that way, if we trusted Christ that way, and we didn't come in an arrogant way, which we would suggest it's impossible to be saved in an arrogant fashion, but if we came humbly before the Lord and repented of our sin and humbleness and we were grieved over our sin, and even after we got saved when we sinned, we grieved over it, then I say to you that you would find yourself that would be the characteristic of your life from then on. And I believe that's what God wants for us. He wants humble people. He wants people who hate pride. And by the way, I personally think pride is probably the most evil sin there is. And I mean, of all the sins you can name, I'm pretty much convinced in studying the Scriptures that pride is the most evil sin of all the sins in the Bible. And I think I could tell you and show you that from the Bible's perspective, it shows up in every other sin. I don't believe there's a sin that you could commit that somewhere in it there is not the mark or the scar of real personal pride. Because I believe that for Adam and Eve to ascend in the garden, I think they were proud. I think the devil persuaded them that they had found something that God had been holding out on them. He had said succinctly, do not eat of the tree. It's in the middle of the garden. They ate of the tree. Why did they eat of the garden tree? Because the devil comes along and sells them on the idea that it was good for food, it was nutritional, and it was good to, to see, it was inviting to look upon, and they, they recognized that that's not what we thought. We thought it was just to stay away from this tree. It must be something bad. They found out it, that it had good things about it. They ate of the tree. They felt better for a moment, but they recognized something all of a sudden came to light. For the first time in their whole existence, they were naked. Never noticed it before, but now they are. And all of a sudden, everything has changed. God comes in the cool of the day to walk with them as he always did. They don't run to him anymore. They hide from him. And I think even before that, they knew something was wrong. What makes people hide from the great God of the universe. One thing. Sin. And sin is what brought them down. But for a moment I believe they were proud. They were proud they found something. They thought was circumvented over what God has said. Don't touch the tree. Don't eat it etc. But they found out it was good for food. It tasted good. It looked good. It was inviting. So their reasoning was. Reasoning of pride. It's like anything else. When God says, do not be you unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And we yoke up with unbelievers. And then we have these consequences that come about because of this unequal yoke. And we somehow want to blame God. There was a certain sense of pride in it that we did it our way. And we just, we just did it our way. We, we wanted to do this. We did this. And there's our results. There's certain pride in all that. Pride shows up in every sin. 
And I believe for that reason it is to be guarded more than anything else in the world. How you see yourself will dictate how the Lord will treat you, how you'll be dealt with, whether you'll be blessed, whether you'll be led of the Spirit, whether you'll be valued and profitable as a servant of the Lord. There's a lot of people work themselves to death and get nowhere serving God because they have an elevated attitude toward themselves. I am somebody. And God, you're richer because you got me. It's unbelievable. I created the Grand Canyon. I created the Smoky Mountains. And all the mountain grandeurs of the world, I created them. That's what we do when we brag on what we've been given. It's no time to brag. It's a time to bow. And I hope you stay there a lot. I hope the song the choir did a few weeks ago, Bow the Knee resonates in your heart every day. Bow the knee. Get down and make sure you stay down and let the Lord raise you up at His pleasure. That's the way to succeed. You'll bow your head with me. We'll not sing, Brother Mike. We'll bow our heads and we'll just ask the Lord to take the Word and drive it deep into our hearts and to our minds and our souls and and help Him and ask Him to help us to address these things on a personal level. The areas of our life where we uh, simply do not acknowledge the Spirit of the Lord working and speaking and convicting and reminding us of the little foxes, the little sins that so easily beset us. Father, we're asking you to make them very obvious in our lives and help us, Father, to confess them and to treat them as an evil thing and not explain them away not try to justify our doing them, but acknowledging how wicked they are because they are a sin against you. And Father, whatever the little sins are and whatever the little foxes have spoiled, I pray that you'd help us to be conscious and cognizant of it. And I pray everything about our, our watching our televisions and the programming that comes on, watching it too much of it to waste our time, or whether it be on our computers with the Facebook and, and the text messaging and so forth, and it becoming useless and of no value, things that are, are really just taking away time that can be used either in, in uh, praying and reading the Word or studying the Scriptures to be ready for a next responsibility we have or, or sharing the Gospel with people in a written form or an email that we could use these instruments to your glory and encourage people to come to faith in Jesus Christ through them. I pray, Father, you help us to be more mindful of your will for us than our wishes of our flesh. Help us not to satisfy the flesh. Help us not to allow the flesh to puff, puff this up. And I pray, Father, that you'd speak to us when we do. Help us to be a sensitive people and help us to always bow the knee. Thank you for your grace, your mercy, and your patience. We've all been in this position of needing your help. And, Father, any who are here this evening in that position, I pray you will speak and draw them to yourself and work in their lives and help us here at the church to be of help to them. Thank you for your grace, your mercy, and the salvation we have in Christ. And thank you for the Holy Spirit, the person who convicts and works in our lives to help us to be all that you'd have us to be as your children. Thank you for his work and his ministry in our life. Help us to be sensitive to him as he does his work. Bless now the folks as they go. Give them safety in their travels and give them a good rest tonight. Keep them healthy and well and safe. 
and give them a great week and help us to bring much honor and much glory to your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you until we meet again. You're dismissed. Thank you.